hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I want to welcome to this week's show. We have a terrific show for you. I, I probably couldn't have a more wide range between two of our guests that I'll introduce a little later on. Uh, we've been very busy, and I can tell you I get so many emails from people all over the world. And I wanted to share this one that came in. It basically just came in today by Mr. Kevin Martin from British Columbia, Canada. And he wrote to me, he said, you know, I've been thinking about COVID-19. I like Eric Clapton, I like his sound. And he goes, and I was wondering, could you consider my song for the McCullough Report? And I said, you know what, let's give it a try. And uh, I'll read just some of the lyrics that he's worked into this video, and then I'll provide the link on the McCullough Report. Because, you know, this is about medicine, it's about science, but it's also about our social and cultural changes that have happened over the last now two years with the SARS-CoV-2 outbreak, the COVID-19 pandemic. So this is Kevin Martin from British Columbia, Canada. Kevin says that people don't want to hear the truth because they don't want to know it. All tyranny needs to gain a foothold is for people to have good conscience to remain silent. Edmund Burke. No jab, no job. The masses have never thirsted after the truth. Wake up and smell the tyranny and stop the lies. Your government is lying to you. This is a protest in Europe. Facts, not fear. I survived Vax injury, prevent more injuries. No Vax mandate for kids. These are some of the scenes in Kevin's video. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. I show up at your door and you ask to see my pets. You can 
can take your vaccine passport and stick it up your ass so you choose what well, is Well, I can right. tell you, Kevin's basically given the word right there. You heard what he thought about what you can do with the vaccine passport. So the title of this is Now's the Time, parentheses, Do What's Right. I'll put the link on the McCullough Report. And just to give you an idea that who would have thought a few years ago that in contemporary music that there would be issues regarding uh, you know, a viral infection and a pandemic and things now all centering on the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, I just finished participating in a whole series of seminars over the last week. And I mentioned to the last one uh, that I was just on a big national seminar. I think the most impactful paper that I've seen in the last two months on COVID-19 was published by a scientist, Bruce Patterson. And he used advanced uh, molecular biological techniques, laboratory techniques, to identify that the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, that spine on the ball of the virus, uh, that the S1 segment, the outer segment of the spine, the one that docks with the ACE2 receptor, he found that in humans who had had COVID-19 infection, they were pretty sick in the hospital and they had uh, taken their cells and kept their cells alive, that he was able to identify spike protein sampled later on as long as 15 months after the natural infection. Meaning, and what Patterson surmised is that the virus must have a broad base of infection in the human body. Uh, it must undergo degradation towards the end of its replication. There must be deposition of this spike protein in cells and interstitial spaces between cells. And then our body's cleanup system called the reticular endothelial system and the featured cells called the phagocyte, that the phagocytes must, in a sense, clean up the spike protein, pass it to monocytes, uh, and the body is trying to eliminate SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, uh, nearly a year and a half later. If this is true to any modicum of what we've seen in the Patterson paper, uh, Dr. Patterson uh, and his co-authors, and I agree, uh, concluded that no wonder people have long COVID syndrome. No wonder they don't feel good for a long period of time. The body is trying to clear this stuff out of the system for a very long time. Now bring in the next concern. The next concern comes from the vaccines. All the vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, &J, use genetic powerful technology to cause a mosaic of human cells to produce the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, the 1200 amino acid original Wuhan spike protein in the human body. It's measurable. We know that in a paper by Ogata and colleagues. It's measurable in plasma before the antibodies do come in, but it's probably expressed in tissues. We know from another paper by Karagakoulos and colleagues, and I'm one of the other authors, shown based on the nucleoside analog caps that we believe the messenger RNA certainly is durable over a month. And the manufacturers knew this because these technologies were used for gene replacement uh, clinical trials, and we're hopeful that these were going to be one-month injections or maybe once every three-month injections. So we have the setup now. Based on the fact that the antibody response after the vaccine against the spike protein is so much greater, it's five to ten times greater than that of the antibody response against the spike protein with the natural infection, I would conclude that probably the vaccines give the human body a bigger load or a bigger challenge, if you will, of Wuhan spike protein than those who actually contracted the respiratory infection. And if that's the case, that means that greater spike protein load still meets its metabolic fate. 
that the human body must clear out the spike protein over a long period of time. So let's just play this out. If you take shot number one of messenger RNA, that's a load of spike protein that is in a sense deposited uh, throughout the body in a mosaic of cells that receive the genetic material and also by uh, distribution through plasma, certainly by the, through the first two weeks, maybe longer. Now, a month later, you get shot number two, another load of spike protein. Again, meeting all the challenges of its metabolic fate. So let's say it is on a 15-month schedule. So shot number one, 15 months to clear it out. But you can't ever get caught up because shot number two, another 15 months to clear out. Now, enter in somebody who's immunocompromised. They'll have shot number three another month later, another 15 months to clear that out. And then in an immunocompromised person, a booster in six months. Now another 15 months. You can imagine when we start to accumulate these half-lives, if you will, or these clearance lives of the spike protein, we'll never get it out of the human body. There'll never be a clearance of someone who gets on a COVID-19 vaccine program with any type of booster program has no meaningful chance of ever clearing out the spike protein in the human body. So what does it mean when the spike protein uh, is a deposited and becomes part of the human body? It becomes uh, something that's in the interstitial space. Have we ever had a dangerous foreign protein that is damaging to cells, that damages blood vessel cells, that causes a sustained increase in the blood clotting ability in the body, that clinically causes blood clots, that cause stroke and myocardial infarction, pulmonary embolism, uh, arterial and venous limb uh, thrombosis and embolism. We've never had this type of consideration confront a human body in the future. What about deposition of spike protein in the brain, in the uh, central nervous system, the peripheral nervous system, uh, the concern about cognitive decline, worsening syndromes like multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's disease, uh, worsening syndromes such as uh, tinnitus, Meniere's disease, migraine headaches, epilepsy, uh, and the list goes on and on. What about spike protein deposition in the bone marrow and hematologic diseases? We know a disease called vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea, VITT, uh, that that certainly occurs. Uh, there was an autopsy of a woman uh, in Oregon, a young mother. Uh, you'll find that on the internet in mid-September. Tragically, she had vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea, and that's actually now part of the obituary. It's not speculation. In fact, she had that new disease. But what about spike protein in other organ systems we haven't thought about? What about the reproductive organs? We know from a biodistribution bio study done by Pfizer for the Japanese regulatory authorities that the lipid nanoparticles accumulate in the ovaries over 48 hours while they wash out of other organs. That was shown previously in studies by the Chinese. Well, if the lipid nanoparticles concentrate in the ovaries and the messenger RNA or the adenoviral DNA starts its initial replication of uh, the uh, and production of the spike protein in those cells and in the, the, uh, the interstitial spaces around those cells, it's very conceivable the spike protein damage in the capillaries of the human ovaries could start to start to cause damage of those ovaries, uh, uh, potentially uh, the corpus luteum, uh, the hormonal uh, a part of the, um, the ovaries, uh, but also other aspects that are responsible for germination and infertility. So it's not a far leap with injection number one, injection number two. Uh, maybe the body can handle those okay. Maybe there's not much of a problem uh, to humans. But what about injections three and four and on an ongoing basis? I can tell you as an internist, a cardiologist, an epidemiologist, one who's reviewed thousands of reports, it would be my projection 
that if we get on a chronic booster program with the current generation of vaccines, that cause a unbridled, unchecked, uncontrolled production of the Wuhan spike protein in the human body, and this is done on any regular basis, that individuals who do uh, take these injections uh, will have a very high risk of chronic disease in the neurologic system, the cardiovascular system, what we know, myocarditis, potentially heart failure, cardiovascular death, uh, thrombosis of all types, stroke, myocardial infarction, limb thromboses, pulmonary embolism, and then lastly, uh, immunologic and hematologic disease, uh, not to mention the possibilities for reduced fertility in the future. People worldwide are getting squeamish about what the vaccines are doing to the human body uh, because our focus now is even off the viral respiratory infection and very much onto the vaccines, uh, what they really propose in terms of human biology and uh, what we can uh, look forward to in the future. Uh, the sociological implications of the vaccine and what they mean and how much uh, discomfort, in a sense, they've brought to Americans is palpable, and it's, it's in the news almost every day. Now, as many of you know, I'm a frequent contributor to Fox News, uh, Laura Ingram, the Ingram Angle, and I was on uh, in the last few days uh, with a new guest that I'd never been on before, Phil Kirpin, and I want you to listen to uh, Laura Ingram and how this evolved with Phil Kirpin, and then I follow in on the biomedical sciences part of this interview. Let's listen. Kids ...and shame those who do not want to do so. What about the actual numbers of child deaths? Statistician Emma Woodhouse, she took a look at the under the hood of the CDC data and noticed something fishy. So while the CDC claims that there have been nearly 750 deaths among the 0 to 17 cohort, the National Center for Health Statistics shows just 558. Now, while every single one of these fatalities is tragic, of course, inflating the stats by 37%, why are they doing that? Could have major policy consequences. Here now is Phil Kirpin, president of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and Dr. Peter McCullough, internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist based in Dallas. Phil, why is the risk to kids being inflated, what point does this serve? Well, I think it does two things. One, it keeps the fear narrative and the control uh, from the government alive a little bit longer. But two, I think, which is much more important at this point, uh, it justifies the otherwise indefensible bad decisions that our politicians and our public health officials have made over the last year and a half, two years. Uh, in, rather than acknowledge error, they're trying to overstate uh, the risks and the dangers to children to justify the massive disruption to their lives, the educational harms, the mental health harms, everything else that they've imposed to this point. And, you know, the director of the CDC should know that the verified death certificate based count from the National Center for Health Statistics is the official count uh, and that the tracker is just whatever the states have submitted, that it gets revised all the time, that it has frequent errors. So the fact that she would pull that tracker number, um, if it wasn't deliberate deception, then she doesn't know her own data really at all, which I think would be even worse. She's one of the least convincing people in an administration chock full of, of, of least convincing people. Now, Dr. McCullough, what, what's really disturbing, I think, is that all the media types and politicians who are celebrating 
this new vaccination campaign for the young kids? Vaccines work. A COVID vaccine works. A vaccine for kids will work. Our parents could soon be handed a miracle of modern science, a COVID vaccine for kids as young as five. Uh, we're going to have the five to 11 year olds. Thank God that vaccine's coming. That's going to be amazing. That's going to be amazing. This is sick. Doctor, why are they so excited? It's what I call vaccine hubris. You know, none of the vaccines work well enough or safe enough uh, to be, uh, you know, taken up in such a hubris. They're certainly not uh, good enough to be mandated in any way, shape, or form. And parents should be aware that Tracy Hoke from the University of California at Davis has published that a child is more likely to be hospitalized with myocarditis then be hospitalized with COVID-19 respiratory illness. So taking the vaccine is not a favorable trade-off. And Ron Kostoff has published an analysis, uh, and this, these have both been presented to the FDA, that a child, unfortunately, is more likely to die after the vaccine than actually die with COVID-19, the respiratory illness. So it's not a favorable trade-off to have children vaccinated. The American College of Pediatrics has that number you just mentioned. It's actually at 499 in their report. Even and lower. what we know about that is that it's almost always in children who have serious underlying illnesses. And yet they're not really tracking that number and that, those statistics as clearly as they could be tracked. In other words, dying with COVID not necessarily from COVID, correct, doctor? Yeah, that's exactly right. What we really need to understand that, I think in Marty Macri's analysis, it was only one child in the whole country who died directly of COVID. What I know about these cases and published is that the children are not adequately treated. And we have great news. We've just had a randomized trial come in with a GlaxoSmithKline monoclonal antibody, Sotrovimab. There was an 85% risk reduction in hospitalization and death. This product has been EUA since May, and it can be used in children all the way down to age 12. That is great news. Gentlemen, thank you. Now, you can tell in these interviews, I have just a minute or two to get my message across, that I try to finish on a positive note. Why not tell America about new monoclonal antibodies, the GlaxoSmithKline product called Sotrimavav, in a prospective randomized trial, high quality, reduce the risk of hospitalization and death by 85%. Get these monoclonal antibodies on day one, certainly for high-risk seniors, uh, those over 65, uh, certainly those over age 50 with multiple medical problems or presenting with severe symptoms. And I would say even younger people in the circumstances, let's say a child had cystic fibrosis or adult congenital heart disease or bronchiectasis or diaphragmatic hernia, any of these things that impair respiration in a child, I wouldn't hesitate let's say over age 20, to fully follow the emergency use authorization and get the GlaxoSmithKline product administered, administered on day one. You know, hospitalization and death are avoidable, but it does take an act of treating the child. Um, clearly, the vaccines aren't going to make an impact there. They have not uh, shown a durable protection against hospitalization and death with the Delta variant. So that's a quick whirlwind of where we are in the week. I have um, a great show. I have two guests, and they couldn't be more different. I'm going to bring on Dr. John Witcher first, and he is a, a, a general practice physician in Mississippi. He's in Jackson, Mississippi. He actually goes out to rural hospitals. He's been managing COVID-19 as an inpatient. And let me tell you what, he has a lot of gumption. He's been putting up 
billboards across the state of Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, basically calling attention to vaccine safety. He just held a vaccine safety uh, roundtable and an open discussion at a major hotel in, um, uh, in Jackson. And uh, it went very well. In fact, we were there in the wee hours uh, signing the book for uh, Peter Bregan, uh, COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey. And then my final guest is Dr. Netta Amani. And Netta has come from Canada and she's relocated to Houston to open up a, a whole series of lifestyle improvement centers. She's planning for the future where we may get into a much more of a wellness-based approach uh, because of a conversion to a much more of a cash-based economy, particularly in healthcare, if people lose their healthcare insurance or become uh, dissatisfied with it, if they become dissatisfied with COVID-19 being so hyper-dominant in the healthcare landscape, many are looking for independent physicians, wellness centers, ways of getting away from conventional, what we call allopathic medicine. So let's get on with it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. You know, I have to put a good word in for Healthy Cell. They have three lines of products that I've been using now for months. One is Immune Super Boost, which is a daily supplement designed to supercharge your immunity. And boy, do we need this now with COVID-19 and the revelation that the COVID-19 spike protein could be in our body for a year and a half after the illness or after vaccination. The next product is Focus and Memory. And again, this brain fog that happens in the long COVID syndrome and even occurs in the post-vaccination syndrome appears to be really calling for uh, a lot of the essential ingredients in the Focus product for healthy cell. And then lastly, my favorite product is the sleep product. The REM sleep uh, healthy cell product has a wonderful blend of uh, combinations of key elements to restore normal sleep architecture. It's very important. It's different than getting uh, put to sleep or forced to sleep. Getting a healthy sleep and having normal sleep architecture is quality sleep. And when we have good quality sleep, we have lower stress hormones during the day. We feel better. And I'm telling you, I'm not going to bed tonight until I've taken my Healthy Cell REM sleep product. So go to HealthyCell.com. And when you order, hit the promo box and type in out loud. That will give you a 20% discount off the products. Uh, try them. Uh, try a box. Try all three. And do your own self-assessment. I know I've, I've done it. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. my great pleasure to welcome to the show for the first time on set in Jackson, Mississippi, Dr. John Witcher. Dr. Witcher went to undergraduate and got his degree in engineering from the University of South Alabama uh, in Mobile. He went on to medical school there and received his MD degree. And then he moved back to his hometown, Jackson, Mississippi, where he uh, started a residency on obstetrics and gynecology. And in the first year, it's the equivalent of an internship. He decided at that time to become a general practitioner, uh, just like the good old days. And he's worked as a general practitioner uh, covering emergency rooms as well as inpatient services uh, in both uh, suburban as well as rural environments. And Dr. Witcher is known in America now for being one of the leading experts and one of the most courageous experts in treating acute COVID-19. Dr. Wisher, welcome to the McCullough Report. 
Thank you, Dr. Uh, McCullough. Glad to be here. Well, it's great to uh, be with a, a fellow physician who from the very start didn't hesitate in treating COVID-19. Give us some of your early insights on what you found uh, in your observations on who, knows, who needs treatment and how do you get going on treatment? Well, we uh, practice in a rural setting in Yazoo City, Mississippi, and, you know, right off the bat, we started seeing patients, and, uh, you know, we knew it was different, uh, but uh, when we put these patients in our little hospital, we, we tried things that uh, we had heard. Of course, we tried hydroxychloroquine in the beginning, and uh, we had some good results there uh, until, of course, it was taken off of our protocol. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So you're using hydroxychloroquine, you're having good results, you observe this clinically, and it was taken off of formulary. Before we get into some of these backward steps, what other drugs have you worked with in your clinical practice? Uh, as far as treating COVID, uh, you know, we when they came in, uh, you know, the, the protocol we were following were a lot like everyone else. They would When they'd come to the ER, um, you know, many times, I guess, you know, we, we'd heard this from other doctors, but... We were basically just sending them home without very much treatment at all and just saying, if you, you, know, if you get worse, you can't breathe, then, then come back to the ER. Now, did, it, did you modify that over time based on age or medical problems? Uh, we, we didn't do a whole lot of that. We, we started giving them some um, Azithromax and, and some steroids and that sort of thing. But for the most part, we, we didn't do a lot of treatment early on. And, uh, and what happened when they ultimately came back to the hospital? Well, they would come back, and, and of course, they'd be in respiratory distress. Uh, some would be in, in uh, full respiratory distress, such that you know we would treat them there in a little hospital and then transfer them on. Many times, uh, uh, being intubated in, in route. Uh, others we put into the hospital, gave them oxygen, and um, and that's where we started using things like hydroxychloroquine, steroids, um, you know, zinc, vitamin uh, C. Uh, D and uh, that sort of thing. And so um, that, that's kind of how we, we, we started in, in the approach of things. Now, when Remdesivir received the emergency use authorization, uh, did you and your group and your inpatient care unit, did you start with Remdesivir as well? We did. Uh, we did that right away. You know, once again, I, even though I work, work in a small hospital, we, we have a pharmacy board and they pretty much put the protocol together. And so, like I said, we were using hydroxychloroquine. It seemed to become a, a very political situation when, when, when uh, Trump uh, was given that. To, and, uh, of course, then immediately nobody could use hydroxychloroquine. So that's kind of where we were. Uh, but then almost immediately, uh, we, we, the pharmacist comes, comes to us and says, oh, but we have remdesivir. Here, here, here's the new drug that we have. So that, that's kind of how that worked. So how did remdesivir work? How was your experience in terms of its efficacy and safety? We used it in a lot of every patient that we admitted. And, you know, I estimate we, we treated uh, several hundred probably in the, in, in the hospital over the last uh, year and a half. And uh, now most of those p patients, I, I characterize them as, uh, as not severely ill, but, but ill enough to need oxygen. Um, and those in those patient population, I, I didn't see really a lot of ill effects from remdesivir. To be honest with you, were you able to get people through five days of infusion? Yes. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. The data overall, remdesivir. I'm not an expert. The data are mixed, and I have a sense of remdesivir that if patients are early in the phase of viral replication, if they, um, you know, they're not too many days into it and they have an active fever, 
that remdesivir as a polymerase inhibitor makes a lot of sense, provided they can get through the infusion, not have uh, an elevation in AST and ALT, the liver function tests, uh, that's prohibitive, or, or go into renal failure, uh, which is prohibitive. Tell us a little bit about your use of steroids in the hospital. Well, we, you know, we bring them in and uh, we give them, we uh, give them dexamethasone is, is the primary steroid we use. Uh, we didn't do a lot of um, inhaled steroids, and that's primarily due to we want, wanted to protect our, our, our respiratory therapist as well as the other patients in the hospital. Okay, so that's an important insight that the inhaled steroids weren't used because this idea that you could actually spread the virus through the using the nebulizer uh, in the room. Although steroids, inhaled steroids, as really pioneered by Dr. Richard Bartlett, the West Texas maverick, uh, was one of the first to go on the national news with budesonide, which is one of the stronger uh, nebulized steroids. Dr. Bartlett showed uh, in his practice that, in fact, it did uh, markedly improve, particularly in outpatients, and now is supported by two randomized trials, including the STOIC trial. And the STOIC trial demonstrated over an 80% reduction in hospitalizations in, in a randomized trial format with inhaled budesonide compared to placebo, given over 10 days as an outpatient. And uh, I thought those were impressive data. What about your use of uh, blood thinners or anticoagulants in the hospital? We did. Uh, we, we gave... Uh, Lovenox. Lovenox. There you go. I was, I was trying there you to add a little mental block. Yeah, Lovenox, the uh, typical. And that, that's something we do with all of our patients. Uh, that, that's kind of a standing order with, with in our little hospital. Now, it sounds like in your hospital, your practice pattern is to use full-dose Lovenox, one milligram per kilogram, which should be full anticoagulation. And that practice pattern is really uh, beneficial for COVID-19. Yes. And we know that because... COVID-19, at the point where the oxygen saturations are going down, the problem is called microthrombosis or mini blood clots in the lungs. That's been shown uh, by many, many scientists and actually universally found at autopsy in those who are hypoxemic uh, that, in fact, they need full-dose anticoagulation. Um, do you also use aspirin in the hospital? Uh, we, we don't typically use aspirin. And that's, and that's an interesting observation. There are published analyses from U.S. hospitals showing uh, mortality reductions with aspirin through the hospital and then at 28 days. And our Italian colleagues now tell us that because of the um, really activation of thromboxane A2 and subsequent downstream measurement of thromboxane B2, that um, in fact there must be massive platelet aggregation occurring because of the infection and the spike protein. And our Italian colleagues are using 700 milligrams a day. So uh, in your experience, uh, if you hospitalize a senior citizen with COVID-19, and again, it's largely a hospitalization crisis of our seniors, uh, in your experience, uh, what are the typical lengths to stay at your hospital? Well, early on when the, the you know, back in the March or last year, uh, you know, we kept most of them for a couple weeks. Uh, and, and many of them we had to bring over from the inpatient to, to, to swing bed to give them uh, strengthening, mm -hmm. uh, really is what we did. Through this Delta variant, even though we saw uh, more people or, or younger people, for mm -hmm. sure, uh, they tended to, it was, it, it was more limited, uh, probably a, a five-day five course. And, and, and we'd have them pretty much ready to, to send home. 
unless they developed more respiratory distress and then those folks would transfer. That's an interesting observation. So is it your view that the Delta variant was in a sense a less virulent or a milder syndrome than the wild type or alpha beta? Um, it, it, it seemed like they uh, may have not been quite as fatigued okay. uh, on this on, through the Delta variant to me, and maybe they recovered a little little faster. Yeah. Well, that's good news. You know, as as primarily an outpatient treating doctor, and I've mentioned uh, to many on the show that um, my perception that Delta was harder to treat, and I think harder because a it was more contagious. Originally, we knew that from the UK variant uh, report data it was more contagious. But also we learned later on with Delta, the viral loads were so high. So 251 to 1,000 fold more with Delta compared to prior variants in the pre-vaccination era. So what that means is when people spread COVID-19, nowadays with Delta, they're getting a large inoculum. They're getting a big, large transmission of virus to one or the other. Dr. Witcher, do you have any final points for our audience about COVID-19 and hospitalization? What should the family members ask about? What should patients uh, be aware of when they're facing the possibility of being hospitalized? Well, uh, I think, Peter, the, the main thing that we have to be concerned with is, you know, I think patients don't need to be put on the ventilator. That's what we want to try to prevent entirely. Okay. And so uh, that's why I'm so interested in your uh, and other doctors' early treatment of COVID as an outpatient, because I do believe, you know, the data shows that if we can treat these patients early, with multi-drug therapy, we can keep them out of the hospitals and keep them off the ventilators. And and I have seen, and we all have, when they go on the ventilator, it's it's very difficult to get them off, and many of them don't make it. Boy, I'll let that be the final word. Uh, you've been listening to Dr. John Witcher here in Jackson, Mississippi, about this transition from outpatient to inpatient care for COVID-19. Dr. Witcher, thank you for joining us on the McCullough Report. Yes, thank you, Dr. McCullough. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know. Find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. 
Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. And I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure for me to invite to the show for the first time, Dr. Mehdi Amani. Dr. Amani went to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill and received her bachelor's degree. She then went on to the University of Toronto in Toronto, Ontario to receive her medical degree and then did her residency in family medicine at the University of Toronto, which is a very prestigious institution. It's probably the top medical school and medical institution in all of Canada. Uh, And then she was in practice uh, in Toronto metro area uh, for many years and then moved on to Ottawa, Ontario. And most recently, she's emigrated to, to the United States, to the huge Houston metro area, to the great state of Texas, uh, where she is embarking on an entirely new area of uh, medicine for many, many Americans, and that deals with health, wellness, and nutrition. Dr. Mani, welcome to the McCullough Report. Dr. McCullough, so happy to be with you. Thank you so much for having me here. Well, let's open up the conversation and let us know about your vision for what types of centers are needed in the future. You know, us in allopathic medicine, we're so focused on technologies and prescription medicines and tests and procedures. Uh, What's your view on a more holistic approach to care? So this is the perfect time. And I want your audience, uh, such a pleasure to be here to speak to your audience about that. We all have a role to play in this vision for real healthcare for the future. And that is one where we recognize and we celebrate the power and the innate healing ability of every one of us. And I think that's the thing that uh, as physicians, we don't learn about. We don't really learn about human potential, how the body is miraculous in its healing ability through the mind, through the, through the spirit, um, through our emotions. Um, and my vision is a vision I think that actually is shared in the hearts of many all over the world, which is centers where we would celebrate the human frame, celebrate the power of the mind and the body to innately heal itself and bring people to practitioners, experts um, in actual health and well-being. So is there really uh, such a thing as mind-body medicine? That's all it is, Dr. McCullough. So you know, you know that um, you know our 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 approach to really dissect the body. Even if you think about it, you know, when we went through med school, we you know we have we have uh, you know respirologists that study the lungs, and then we have and treat the lungs, and then we have you know cardiologists and gastroenterologists, and we separate all the body parts. Well, it's all connected and. Um, I believe that because Western medicine really approached health and healing from a disease state, so the paradigm was really about pathology and disease, we don't really understand the fact that all the organ systems are connected and that in the body is also connected to the mind, which is also connected to our emotions, which is also connected to our spirit. And so by separating, we're really missing the boat on not only um, moving our populations globally from disease, which we know is the main focus and has been up till now, um, to health and well-being, but we're also not embracing the opportunity to go into this whole new realm of human potential where we're able to tap into our higher 
cognitive, um, mental and emotional abilities and physical abilities. It sounds like almost every one of us needs to, at some point in time, just check out of our busy lives and check into a center uh, like yours and just kind of let go and uh, work on reconnecting the body and the mind, right? Absolutely. So, you know, um, I've been on this journey for over 20 years now with all my heart and soul. And just, I feel so blessed that um, God has put this in in my heart uh, to see this vision come to pass. And that's why I'm here right now in Texas, because I believe that, um, that there's a lot of support for this vision here um, in the United States, particularly down here in the South. Um, you know, it's basically, you would come to the, of our center that, you know, that took about 20 years in the, in the making to set up in Ottawa, which I recently closed to make this move uh, here. Um, and the video is on our channel on, I'm going to do a little plug for, it's called the Dr. Ned show on YouTube. And there's a, there's a short video on the health center of the future that people can see to sort of take them through what I'm going to be speaking about right now. Um, which is basically you come in and the place has to be beautiful. So we know that typical medical clinics are not uplifting, even the hospitals, right? They're sick places, they're places for the sick. But if again, we move from this paradigm that we're not supposed to be sick, in fact, more than 90% of disease can be preventable and treatable through the mind uh, training, through lifestyle changes, you would come to these centers, they would be uplifting, they would be beautiful, um, have natural lighting, celebrating, you know, just all that makes us divine, really. Um, and then you would meet with people who are experts in nutrition, in movement, or, you know, exercise, in breath work, in nature, the power of nature, in the creative arts, in the power of spirituality, actually, the area of spirituality, and all these things you would, you would meet with. Um, and we developed a program that really uh, delivers all this training and also takes people through this journey where they're getting support and education in all these different areas. And, you know, you would be able to then come at any age, at any level of health or sickness. And we saw in our program, because um, I was asked to develop a wellness program for the police force of, in Ottawa over 10 years ago, and exclusively did that for about a decade, um, seeing hundreds of police officers and civilians. And we were able to transform people's health, no matter how sick they were, um, and also their lives, right? Their relationships, their, their financial abundance, their, their uh, aging process, so many things, you're able to really transform people to their next level, wherever they're at. And so as we move towards this kind of model of healthcare, what we're going to do is not only we're going to be able to help people recover and heal from disease, but we're going to set the stage for younger and younger people to come to these centers and learn how to take the power of their health and well-being back into their own hands so that we create a society that is healthier, happier, more peaceful. And we know that a society that's healthier, happier, more peaceful is a more just um, and equitable society. And that's the long-term vision, Dr. McCullough. I think that's important. I agree with you. I go into a hospital every day and I always wonder, you know, what are these hospital administrators thinking of? You know, we walk into hotels that are more welcoming. We walk into other public places that are so are far more welcoming and make make us feel better. Uh, hospitals and clinics out of all the places should make us feel better the minute we walk in and they shouldn't make us feel bad and let alone make us treat us bad. 
Um, you know, I've been into some clinics, honestly, with some relatives where we got yelled at by the staff because we didn't check in in the right place or we didn't sign the right form. And I use the analogy, can you imagine if you checked into the Ritz-Carlton and you had to go to this desk to, to check into the room and go to this desk to get your pillows and you have to go to this desk uh, to sign up for room service and you got to go to this desk in order to get your um, uh, your uh, soap and, and, and you had to check in three times and you get yelled at by all the people at all the desks, you'd walk out of the Ritz-Carlton. You say, forget it, I'm not going to stay here. You know, hotels learned how to at least accommodate people for staying overnight. And what you're saying is basically, in order to get well, we have to do much better. And I think all of healthcare and all of healthcare administration really has to do a self-examination uh, because, um, you know, in the book called Culture Code, I don't know if you've ever read the book Culture Code, but Culture no. Code is a wonderful book. It was written by a French psychologist who became a consultant to the major industries, including the automotive and other industries. He did a whole variety of um, uh, focus groups and he would throw out a word and then he would work with tons of groups to figure out what was the very first thing that came into their mind regarding that word. And the one thing I remember about culture code is the word hospital. Mm -hmm. And you know what the most frequent associated word was that came out in, in focus group after focus group? Death trap. Mm -hmm. Hospital, death trap. And boy, you couldn't have a worse mental association than that. So this sounds absolutely terrific. Now, can you just give us a few words about how a center like this could start to receive and work with patients who have either been damaged by the COVID respiratory syndrome or the COVID-19 vaccines? Yeah. So just, just before I go into that, I do want to touch on the point that what you said about um, how people are treated and, uh, and that is actually the crux of how people are treated right in the hospital and the medical settings is that is so important um, because this is, it's, it's the premise of everything in these centers and the way I've practiced and our, you know, everyone on my team from the naturopaths and nutritional specialists, other physicians, physiotherapists, psychologists, yoga instructors, massage therapists, they all, this was, this was, you know, this was the basis of their hiring that we don't even call them patients really in this model. They're people, they are people that we're meeting as equals. We are equals because we're all equal, right? We're all divinely created. And we're also seeing them as a mirror to their, the program was called the real is called the real you. And we're really seeing the truth in that individual, the health, the well-being, the spark, the divinity in that individual until they get to see it. So we're seeing them with the higher eye because for some reason, for different reasons of their upbringing, trauma, the environment, they haven't seen that. We're seeing them as equals because they are. We're seeing them as people because they are. They're not patients because when we say the word patient, we're already assuming that that person is sick. And, and we know that many, many conditions can be reversed and healed um, through this approach. Uh, and we've, we've seen it. And then we're also seeing them at, as their true self. And that's why the program is called The Real You. So that in of itself, when someone comes and meets you as a healthcare practitioner, whether you're a physician or a, you know, or a physiotherapist, it doesn't matter what your role is. When they're coming and seeing a healthcare pr practitioner, all people want is to be seen for who they really are, to be cared for, to be loved at the core of who they are, because they often don't feel that themselves for themselves. And so that treatment, right? And that's why we like to go. We love to go to hotels and spas, as you said it. Why? Because we are treated really well. 
Now that comes with a price tag to be treated that well, right? Oftentimes we're paying for that. But the truth is, is that that's the way we should be treating everybody out there. We should be, especially as healthcare providers, we want to be treating people with dignity and the respect that they deserve. So I just wanted to make that point that that is the foundation and the eye of this center. And so, yeah, people who've been injured um, or are sick with, you know, COVID or any other, any other really illness would come basically and would have, you know, my visits as the physician. So the physician is the center of this model um, as an intake, because unfortunately, or fortunately still, right, it will change in the future. Um, most people, you know, won't, you know, our cops, for example, there's no way they would have gone initially when we started that program in 2007, would have gone to a naturopath, but they would have trusted my, um, you know, judgment and recommendations as a physician. So the physician is going to be the center, but the physician themselves can't be just any physician. The physician has to have done their own healing and health uh, journey, right, with commitment, because, doesn't matter how much you're educated, doesn't matter what medical school you went to, what training you have, how many degrees behind your name. If you're not healthy and well yourself, you can't guide another one to be healthy. The, the vice versa is also true. You don't need much of an education. Um, uh, uh, and if you, but if you are living a healthy life and you've been able to, you know, withstand, not only withstand the stress of life, but also use it to become into your higher potential, become stronger in the mind, body, and the spirit, then you actually are a walking, quote unquote, healer, physician out there, because you're also sharing that knowledge as a role model to other people. So, you know, people would come, they would meet with the physician, we would do an, we do an, uh, we do a very extensive intake, um, looking at all the various symptoms, looking at their lifestyle, everything from, you know, their environment, their home environment, their relationships, it's pretty extensive intake. And usually that takes about one hour in that first visit, it can take up to a number of hours at follow up visits as the per if the person is really, really sick, um, or has multiple um, medical conditions. And then they basically get introduced or referred to the prescription and the prescription in this program, the really program is the team. So it's a team of practitioners, which would be the diet expert, the nutrition expert, the movement, the breath, you know, mindfulness, uh, uh, mind training, psychologists, and, um, and the yoga and, and then and then they would basically go through the visits with the team members, and there's a curriculum in every single which uh, every single area. And then, and you know, invariably, we see our program generally, depending again, where people come at. So we have people, let's just say, we'll split them up into three groups, we have high risk group uh, category, which is generally people over the age of 40, with multiple health conditions. Um, and generally, that represents about 20 to 30% of the population, depending on what country you're at, um, because it correlates with the obesity um, crisis as well. Um, and then we have the moderate risk category. So generally people um, in their 30s to, you know, 50s, uh, maybe a few conditions, and that's about 50% of the population. And then you have the lower risk category. So generally younger people whose lifestyles hasn't caught up with them yet. Um, and or people who are really, really healthy and living a, you know, very balanced lifestyle, and have worked on their mind and their own healing. And so depending on where those people are at, generally, the program can be anywhere from, and again, the program is focused education, support, and empowerment of the individual to be their own doctor, um, to be their own, you know, guide and, and healer. So that could be anywhere from like six months, um, up to a year, year and a half, and some of the more high risk people, you know, sometimes it's taken around three to four years to really reverse conditions. And I'm talking about reversing conditions, easy conditions to reverse are, you know, dyslipidemia or high cholesterol, 
um, high blood pressure, diabetes is easy. We've, we've reversed, you know, most of our diabetic patients that come in, we've reversed, we've helped reverse, but the more tougher conditions that I didn't even know. And so many conditions that I didn't know could be completely reversed are things like autoimmune conditions, um, chronic pain, chronic mental illness, addictions, and you're, we're able to reverse these conditions through this approach, which is amazing. Well, that's absolutely terrific. What's your viewpoint in this last segment? about those who have sustained um, what's called long COVID syndrome after COVID-19, or they have uh, brain fog or some type of uh, neurologic injury or weakness after the vaccines? So, you know, this is very similar. And I'm, a, I've, I'm someone who uh, sustained a really significant concussion and worked with a lot of our officers who also had um, concussions mostly through their work. So I know this burst both personally from uh, firsthand experience and also working with patients with um, traumatic brain injuries, which is kind of the, you know, we're, we're seeing right now, the symptoms that we're seeing in long COVID um, are, you know, reflective of what you would see also in a traumatic brain injury. And that is really getting at the crux of two issues that is really the basis of all disease, right? All disease, which is inflammation, and hypoxia at the cellular level. So the health of the cells at the, at the cellular level. And so the, the way that we would approach this is how do we optimize the person's um, oxygenation at the cellular level? And then how do we optimize um, the, you know, the inflammation that's going on at the baseline through diet, through, you know, change in the uh, acidic, you know, pH balance, the acidic alkaline balance of the, of the body. Um, and then a lot of work, believe it or not, on um, the nervous system, which affects these two things is, uh, is looking at people's emotions and how they manage stress and their breath. And that's through a lot of the work through optimizing the parasympathetic nervous system. So how do you, you know, how do you get them uh, doing deep breathing, meditation, spiritual activity, time in the creative arts, time in nature, um, which have profound impact on the parasympathetic nervous system and this pH acid alkaline balance and also the inflammation. Well, it sounds terrific. And it's, it really is probably just what is going to be needed in the years ahead. You know, given the high price of insurance and co-pays right now, uh, I imagine employers and others and individuals are going to have money to spend on this type of um, self-assessment, reappraisal, renewal, uh, improvement, um, particularly because um, the vacation spending is down. You know, many people can't travel like they used to. And, and maybe some time uh, in a center like this, uh, sounding pretty good for me and myself right now, uh, <laughs> after going hard at about 18 months, I haven't taken a day off since COVID-19 hit. Um, Dr. Amani, do you have any final words for the, uh, for the McCullough Report audience? Yes. Um, first of all, I want to thank you, Dr. McCullough, for everything that you're doing right now at this time to um, support people, real health and well-being. I want to, I want to do a plug for vitamin D because, um, because I don't feel like it, it's been talked enough about at this time in particular in optimizing the body's ability to resist and with, uh, withstand um, pretty much every single disease from cancer, um, assault, you know, the risk for cancer to uh, viral infection like COVID. Um, but the main message is for people to look at this opportunity that, that this COVID crisis has brought us is to really embrace the understanding and the truth that um, can take any attack on ourselves, whether it's an accident, a car accident, 
whether it's a traumatic brain injury, whether it's a virus, um, whether it's stress or loss or trauma, we're able to really, by working within internally, we're able to transmute or change that assault to us, that attack to us and, and turn it into our superpower. Um, and I know it sounds kind of um, exaggerated, but it's not, this is, this is a unique opportunity. And in doing that, we're going to be able to enter a realm of, you know, exploring real human potential. And also um, that includes the potential for peace and unity um, amongst all people, which is my hope and wish for our children and our future generations. Well, on that hopeful word, I'll let that be the last word on the McCullough Report. You've been listening to Dr. Netta Amani. Look her up, Houston, Texas, all about wellness. And uh, it's been great to have her on that other side of the microphone. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.